0: Well, we have come to the end of Philippians, the end of our sermon series through this book. And uh, as is typical in Paul's letters... Uh, He closes by giving various uh, greetings, salutations, and parting words of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, what I'd like to do in this uh, final sermon is just uh, briefly walk through our text, give a brief exposition of it, and then I want to kind of come back and spend the rest of our time talking about contentment um, and how it is that we can attain this virtue that Paul exemplifies. So, walk through our text, then. Talk about contentment. So jumping in, starting in verse 10, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. As we have seen in just about every sermon, Paul lives his life rejoicing. And here he is rejoicing greatly because the love of the Philippians has flowered and borne fruit. The sun is out, the light of Christ has dawned, and they are opening to his love. The Philippian church was eager to give. They were eager to give to Paul, but for some reason, they lacked the opportunity. It might have been the distance, it might have been the lack of a messenger, the lack of funds, or some other obstacle. But whatever it was, that obstacle has been cleared, and they can now make good on their generous intentions." Notice the logic of Paul's joy. Why is Paul rejoicing? He is not rejoicing simply because he got some stuff. He is rejoicing in the blessedness of the Philippians. He's rejoicing in the Philippians receiving a gift from their generosity from the Lord. Paul has so internalized what Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive That his joy is increased by their joy. This is kind of like Paul saying, uh, I'm really happy because you're really happy. And it's more happy to be the giver than the receiver, and I want that happiness for you. As we have already seen in this letter, Paul values people far more than possessions. The reason why Paul could be indestructibly joyful is because he was in tune with reality. Paul knew the real and actual value of things. He knew what was going to last for eternity and he knew what was going to fade away. People are forever. Possessions are not. As he says in 1 Timothy 6:7, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The only thing that you can bring with you is other people. The only treasure you can store up here is heavenly treasure. And Jesus says, if you want to be rich, that's good. Be rich toward God, Luke 12, 21. Paul knew that the Philippians were being rich toward God in their generosity to him. And that is what makes Paul rejoice greatly in the Lord. Moving to verse 11, he says, not that I speak in respect of want, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So here he continues to qualify the manner in which he received their gift. He's saying, you know, it's not like I'm sitting in prison depressed and dejected because I don't have all my books and things. He says, I can be content no matter what. He goes on in verses 12 and 13 to explain. He says, I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. This is the true context of that famous verse. You see, you know, athletes uh, say this before the game, I can do all things, and that's fine. Uh, But this is the context. It's, I know how to have nothing, and I know how to have everything, Contentment is so hard that you're going to need Christ to do it. You're going to need Christ's strength. This is what Paul needed and this is what you need. Paul has learned how to have nothing and he's learned how to have way more than he needs and to not let those material circumstances dictate his joy. This is the emotional self-control that we call contentment. And we will return to this later. Moving into verse 14, he says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. So here he's saying, you know, although I am content, uh, I praise you for your generosity and participation in my suffering. This is kind of Paul's way of saying, uh, It's the thought that counts and the gift that Epaphrodite has brought to me uh, tells me how much you love me and, and are thinking of me. In verses 15 and 16, he uh, then says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. This hearkens back to Paul's second missionary journey, which uh, you can read about in Acts 15 to 18. This is where Paul planted the church at Philippi. You remember he meets Lydia. He casts the the spirit of a python out of a a woman, and then he uh, ends up uh, in jail because of this. So after Paul had planted the church in Philippi, spends a little bit of time there, he goes on to Thessalonica then Berea, then Athens, and then Corinth, and all the while being hunted down by angry Jews. This is important for Paul to note because if you read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll see that both of those churches had problems with money. The Thessalonian church had problems with people being busybodies, not working, freeloading off of other people. Paul says, "This we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So needless to say, the Thessalonian church did not financially support Paul in part because some were lazy and unreliable. The Corinthians had a whole host of other issues, and because of this, Paul does not want to let money get in the way of telling them some very hard things. For immature churches and immature people, money usually just complicates things. And that was the case for the Corinthians. So the Philippians are exemplary in this regard. They have their priorities straight. And apart from that conflict between Iodius and Syntyche that we looked at last week, they are by all accounts a thriving, healthy church. And generosity is one of the chief signs of health. Where there is love, you will find generosity. Um, Just this week, uh, the elders uh, and deacons, we finally put together a budget for 2023. And uh, I think I can say on behalf of the elders that we were all incredibly encouraged uh, by what God has done in just a year and a half. Uh, (laughs) To be where we are at this stage in the church planting process is uh, remarkable, uh, and we'll, we'll be presenting uh, the budget to you uh, at a head of household meeting probably uh, toward the end of February. So uh, God really is planting this church. He is the church planter. And uh, some of you might not know this, but uh, the majority of church plants fail. Uh, and usually within the first five years, and some uh, much faster than that, and money is one of the big reasons why churches fail. There's other reasons, too, but this is uh, one of them. It's kind of like marriage. What are your problems in marriage? It's going to be uh, money, children, in-laws, you know, yourself. Uh, <laughs> those are the problems. We're, we're having a marriage series start next week, so, so just gear up for that. Um, but God has been incredibly gracious to our church, the fact that we have we now have wood behind me instead of whatever was before. Uh, this this is a great blessing. If for those of you who remember uh, walking through this building and the work that you have done and many people have done to make it what it is, the graciousness of Calvary Chapel to bless us with this opportunity. Uh, you know, this is really rare that we are a church that's only a year and a half old, and this is where we are. So we should thank God for that. We should thank God for providing, and we should continue to seek to be the kind of church that the Apostle Paul would be okay receiving a gift from. We want to become mature enough to handle money in a way that honors God, to be rulers over our possessions not ruled by them, knowing that money is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. In verse uh, 17, Paul continues to clarify the why behind his partnership with the Philippians. Why does he receive anything from them? He says, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. In other words, Paul's saying, I want your heavenly bank account to be accruing interest. Um, If you've ever uh, looked at how compound interest works. You've ever, you know, maybe you sat down with a financial planner and they say, okay, when do you want to retire? And they, you, know, you can type in the numbers, and here's how much you need. And you know what a compound interest curve looks like? <laughs> it looks like this. You'll hit a certain point where the growth starts being exponential. And Paul's saying, think of that and run that off into eternity. <laughs> okay, and you're just planning for when you're what 80? <laughs> You should be planning for when you're 800. You should be planning for when you are 8,000. Because the truth is, you are going to live forever somewhere. Are you planning for that? Paul wants the Philippians to experience the exponential growth of fruit. And by allowing them to give to him, he is giving them that opportunity. This is part of the reason for his joy. Finally, in verse 18, He rejoices in the gift. He says, But I have all. I received it. I abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. This is the language of worship. Just as you would bring your gift to the altar in the temple and offer it to God, so the Philippians have done the same by supporting Paul. Our tithes and our offerings are sacrificial worship when they are given to support God's church with a cheerful spirit. God loves a cheerful giver. And this was the Philippians. This gift abounds to their heavenly account and ascends as a pleasing aroma to God. And because of this, Paul can offer them this glorious promise in verse 19. He says, But my God shall supply all all your need, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is a precious and profound promise. Uh, This is a promise that Christians should look to, uh, but we need to talk about what exactly it entails. What can you count on from God? Uh, Some people have tried to spiritualize this verse to mean that God shall only supply your spiritual needs. And While that is true, that's not really the intention of this particular text. This is a promise that God will take care of the Philippians' physical and material needs as well. And notice, he's talking about their needs, not their wants. There are many other passages that prove this, and because there's been, uh, you know, prosperity evangelists on one side who want you to give so they can you know, have their private jet, and then you have kind of poverty theologians who want to say, you know, poverty is the only way to be righteous. We need to be careful to to allow scripture to say everything about money and us walk the path between these these different texts. So um, Jesus says this, he says in Luke 12, if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things shall be added unto you. And if you look at what the, all these things are there, he's just talking about food and clothing. It's not talking about uh, making us all millionaires, you know, driving Ferraris and stuff. We're talking about the basics of food and clothing. David says similarly in Psalm 37, he says, I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging bread. I have been young and now I'm old. And I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Jesus says, if God adorns the lilies and feeds the ravens, you who are far more valuable than birds and plants will be cared for. Your job is simply to prioritize and seek first the kingdom. That's what the Philippians were doing. And when you do that, you can be assured that God will take care of you. God will supply all of your needs. Now, how exactly does God do this? Uh, this provision can come to you in different ways. It can come what we might call uh, naturally, which is by sowing and reaping, working hard and earning wages. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9.6, "'He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully.'" God is not mocked, this is his world, a man reaps what he sows. So often, for a lot of people, God provides through the natural miracle of you getting up and going to work. He provides through sowing and reaping, stuff goes into the ground and comes back multiplied. This might look like your business, thriving, or maybe you get a raise or a promotion for good work, those kinds of things. Deuteronomy 8.18 puts it this way, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. God supplies you with the strength to work, and then He blesses your work and brings increase as you offer the first fruits to Him. That is kind of the, the normal pattern of how God provides. But we also see in Scripture that God provides in what we would call kind of miraculous or supernatural ways. Um, examples of this would include Jesus feeding 5,000 people, well, actually much more than that, with five loaves and two fish. Or if you remember Elijah, there was a drought in the land, and God sends ravens to bring him uh, bread and meat morning and evening. You also see um, the story of Elisha and the widow in 2 Kings 4. There's this woman, and she has, uh, she's widowed, and she has this jar of oil. And uh, Elisha does this miracle where she can just fill up all of these vessels until they're all full, sell sell them, and the oil doesn't run out. And she's able to actually uh, buy bread, take care of her children, and survive. So God has uh, no lack, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God, and he gives to whom he will, some more, some less, but always to those who love him exactly what they need. This is the promise for those who belong to God and who seek first his kingdom. Finally, verses 20 to 22 close with praise and salutations. He says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren with which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So you think, what is the savor of this letter? The savor of this letter, I think, is joy and thanksgiving. Remember I said at the very beginning of this series that this is Paul's happiest letter. It begins happy and it ends with joy and thanksgiving. The savor of this letter is grounded on these promises that God is for the Philippians. God loves the Philippians and God is going to take care of the Philippians. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God loves you enough to give himself, to give his beloved son, then you think he's not going to give you the bare necessities? That's crazy, Paul's saying. The whole world belongs to Christ. And if it belongs to Christ and you are in him, it belongs to you. We are inheritors of everything with Christ. And if we believe that promise, then we too can learn what Paul learned, this supernatural gift of contentment. We too can learn how to abound and how to be abased and to rejoice through that whole uh, crazy roller coaster. So let's return to this question of contentment. So how do we actually become content people? Uh, If we go back to verse 11, Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that contentment is something that is learned. It is not something you are born with. It's not a personality trait. It is a spiritual virtue that is taught by God in the school of Christ. And the way that Paul learned this was by experience. Paul experienced being stoned, beaten, left for dead multiple times. He experienced sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold and nakedness. He was also shipwrecked. He experienced these things not because he did anything wrong. He wasn't out of the will of God, but rather he was doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. God deprived him of even those basic human needs, those things that Jesus promises, sleep, bread, water, clothing. Why? Because God wanted to give Paul something even better, the supernatural power of contentment, of joy and hope in the things that are eternal. This is what Paul needed more than food and clothing, and it's what all of us need more than food and clothing as well. So, when God strips strips things from you or gives things to you, sometimes it is the direct consequence of your actions, sin or righteousness, and sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with them, no correlation at all. If you read Ecclesiastes, this is one of the lessons. Sometimes it happens to the righteous according to the wicked, and sometimes it happens the other way. There are many examples of this in scripture. I'll give you a handful. You might be the man who is born blind. And why? For no reason but the glory of God, John 9. Or you might be the person who is weak and sick because of unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11:30. 30. There were people who were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily and they died. You might be rich and wealthy because God is fattening you up for the slaughter. This is, you know, every kingdom right before it falls. Or you might be rich and wealthy because of God's Deuteronomic blessings on your household. Look at Abraham and Job and many others. At one level, it doesn't really matter how you got there because contentment can be learned in every circumstance. You are always in the school of contentment you could be suffering for your own sin or suffering for God's glory. But contentment is possible in both of those scenario, scenarios, although the latter is much more to be desired. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 15 to 16 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So Peter's saying, you know, you're gonna suffer in life. <laughs> you're gonna die. Uh, but if you're gonna suffer, at least suffer for righteousness' sake, right? Uh, you don't wanna put yourself in the situation where you have to learn contentment in a you know five by five cell or something like that uh, because of something sinful you did. Don't don't be that person. You'd rather be Paul, who's in prison because you were preaching the gospel. Then you can, you know, sing Psalms and maybe the chains will come off. You never know. In verse 12, Paul continues, he says. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere, wherever he goes. And Paul was all over the place. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. So Christ gives us the strength to be content. There's no contentment if you don't have Christ. But what does this look like when we have plenty or when we are in want? How does Christ help us to avoid discontent in both of these scenarios? To answer this, I want to look at 1 Timothy 6. If you want to go there in your Bibles, I I would invite you to do that. 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul gives us kind of an inside look at this secret of contentment. How does he do this? So he says in uh, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6, and I'm going to kind of bring all these texts together here. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jumping to verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. The first step to contentment, after recognizing it's something that you must learn, is just to remember what God owes you. What does God owe you? What are the wages of sin? Death. What happens to those who are outside of Christ? Judgment. That is what every sinner is justly entitled to. Much of our discontent, you will realize, is us just thinking that God owes us something other than that. (laughs) People walk around feeling like God owes them something. And so if we would learn uh, contentment, We must start by humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Because when we do this, we are able to see then that everything that we have is gift. And gratitude is the soil where contentment grows. It's the only place where contentment grows. So the second step is then to thank God for your food and your clothing. These are the two things that Jesus promises to give us if we seek first the kingdom. And having food and clothing, Paul says, with these we shall be content. So that's that's the two steps. One, remember what you should uh, should have from God, what he owes you, and then remember what you have, right? You have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. In America, uh, most of us have an abundance of these things. We have more food than we can eat, more clothes than we can wear, right? There are very few people in America who live kind of hand to mouth. We live in a society where clothing is cheap and abundant, even free, and food uh, in many cases as well. And Paul says, with these two things, we should be content. And you look around, is America content? (laughs) Do other nations look at America and say, now, those Americans are a content people. Right? We laugh because we're not. But Christians must resolve in ourselves that if everything else is taken from us, God has given us all that we need if we have simple food and clothing. Now, notice in 1 Timothy 6 what Paul spends his time teaching on. You think most people find it hard to be content because we think we need more stuff, right? Uh, Americans, I'll put it this way, if you live in America, you're pretty rich, Okay. We're the richest nation, basically, in the history of the world, and the poor people in America are quite wealthy compared to the poor in many other uh, places. So like, just objectively, we are a very uh, bountiful aso- society if food and clothing uh, are, th- are the bare necessities. So if you have more than food and clothing, you're doing pretty good, and that's basically the whole Western world today. We are a fabulously rich society, and yet we don't feel rich. We buy things, and they don't satisfy us. We are what Psalm 106.15 says as a nation. It says, God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. God gave them what they wanted, but sent leanness into their soul. Our nation worships mammon. We prioritize money over the worship of God. We trample the Sabbath day. Our food is polluted by the shedding of innocent blood that cries out for vengeance. We have sown idolatry and are reaping its fruits. And then we wonder why a nation as fat as ours is so dissatisfied. God has given us over to our lusts and sent leanness into our soul. As a nation, we have not sought first the kingdom of God. And so in contrast to the world, the church is to be marked by thanksgiving and contentment. This is the key. This is the key to our witness. Just as the Israelites plundered the Egyptians and took their spoils to build the tabernacle, so the Christian church shall inherit what the wicked has piled up. And from those spoils, we will build cathedrals. Christian schools, Christian universities, Christian hospitals, a Christian society. That's where history is headed. That's what we are promised if we would seek first the kingdom. Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Think about this. A good man leaves an inheritance for his grandkids, But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Notice, in both cases, the wealth is going to the righteous. (laughs) Either the grandchildren of the saints, or the righteous inherit what, what the sinner has stored up. This is true both temporally and, of course, true eternally. We inherit the world. So, how are you doing? Are you a good man? Are you planning to leave an inheritance for your grandchildren? What kind of legacy are you going to leave behind? And if you are not a Christian, why would you gain the world only to lose your soul? Why won't you store up treasure for when you're 800, not just for when you're 80? How does someone be content when they are as rich as we are? Well, Paul says very simply, you just must not put your trust in stuff. Do not put your trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Be rich in good works. Be ready to give, willing to share, storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the time to come that you may lay hold on eternal life. will close with this. Christ, being rich, became poor, For us, that we might inherit everything. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe that God is good? Or are you the man who receives a talent from the Lord and thinks him a hard taskmaster? God is gracious. He wants to give you good things, but only when you can handle them. So do what he says. Seek first the kingdom, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that uh, we look very much just like the rest of the world at times. We are a envious and jealous and dissatisfied people. God, I ask that you would uh, give us a heart of thanksgiving, Open our eyes to see how kind you have been to us, how you make the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. How you are so patient and so kind and that patience is meant to lead people to repentance. God, make us as a church to be a joyful, generous, contented people. Make us to stand out in this world that is wondering, why is there leanness in my soul? God, make us able to minister unto them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.